This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. And I've been waiting to say this for a long time. Open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Today we start, well boy, that's enthusiasm. I don't think we've ever started a new series and had whoops, hollers, and random applause. So... You're dismissed. <laughs> it's as good, it may be as good as it gets right there. Acts chapter 1. Today we begin a journey uh, through the book of Acts. Listen, I love our church. And now we have problems starting with me. We have weaknesses. I'm sure I'm blind to some of them, but I'm aware of many of them. But I love, absolutely love our church. I love being a part of it. I love investing my life in it. Um, I not only love our church, but I love the evangelical church. I love the broader evangelical church, and I have great hope for the broader evangelical church in this country, in the United States. Great hope. I love our church. I love the broader evangelical church, and I have great hope for the future of the church in this country. But the evangelical church has challenges. We've got problems. We are in a position of a diminishing momentum, a diminishing influence in our culture. So rather than gaining influence and rather than gaining momentum in our our culture, we are losing it. Now, we have many hindrances, hindrances to our mission, uh, like starting with the fact that we, the evangelical church, proclaim a message of exclusivity in a culture um, of plurality, a pluralistic culture. So we announce, according to the scripture, that Jesus is the only way to the Father, He is the only means of salvation, and his word is both true and authoritative. And we live in a culture where there are many truths and many ways uh, to God, if he even exists. So we have hindrances to our mission. We are losing a generation. I don't know if you know this, but we are losing a generation of Christians. If the statistics are to be believed at all, and if they are to even be pulled down and assume that they're, they're too high, uh, the statistics report that young people are exiting the church in droves, in packs, that when the average evangelical youth hits college, uh, that he's out of here. And if he may or she makes it through college to post-college age, whether they go to college or not, a post-college age, if they make it through high school as an evangel- part of an evangelical church, through college, and in post-college life, if that's you, you are a rarity. About one in five. About one in five of the high school students here ten years from now will be in the church. Less than that, statistically. So we're losing a generation. That's a problem, and that hinders our influence and our momentum. We face increased marginalization in our culture because we live in a progressive, quote-unquote, progressive culture whereas, uh, whereby the biblical standards of morality 
are mocked and marginalized, particularly biblical standards with regard to sexuality and family. They are being pushed further and further and being categorized as an extremist position and an extremist understanding that anyone would take the Scripture as authoritative. And so we are becoming increasingly outdated in a culture. We are losing influence. We are losing momentum. We are losing strength. We are losing our next generation. But I believe our greatest challenges are not out there. Matter of fact, that they don't even register, in my mind, compared to the challenges that are in here, in me, and in you. Our pastoral team went and attended a seminar locally this week that was taught by uh, Paul Tripp. Many of you are familiar with him, and uh, he was raising his concerns about what he views as as a crisis of uh, pastoral ministry in this country. Uh, And he made this statement. He basically said that he felt like the greatest challenge to pastors uh, is this, that they have lost their sense of awe at God. And without deflecting the critique too quickly, I wanted to say, that's not a pastoral problem, that's a Christian problem. And pastors who are aweless may lead churches that are aweless, to be sure. But that is a Christian problem. See, I think our greatest challenge is that we have lost the wonder. We're no longer in the wonder years. We have lost the wonder, many of us, of what it means to know Christ and what it means to be a part of his body, his church, and giving our lives for his mission. So many of us and so many of our churches lack awe. We we lack a sense of wonder. We lack a sense of vision, a sense of power, a sense of purpose, a sense of majesty, a sense of dignity and nobility of what it means to be part of God's purposes on this planet. We have lost the wonder that was resident in the early church. Now, I don't have a romantic view of the early church. They had plenty of problems internally, just as we do. But as you look at the early church as recorded in the book of Acts, it is clear that there is an awareness of the majestic presence of Christ, and I fear we've lost that. The liberal media is not our problem if it's even liberal to begin with, that's a value statement. But if that's true that it is, that is not our problem. Our problem is not people persecuting or resisting or rejecting our values. Our problem is that we largely, many people, not everyone, many churches, not every church, but many have lost the sense of the majestic presence of Jesus in and among his people. And we have become very proficient at running meetings. We can do sound and lights. The, the AV improvements, audiovisual improvements in the church in the last 10 years are staggering and have made for uh, about nil life change. So we can run a meeting. We can do a study, a, a study of the scripture. We can organize events. We can do outreaches. And yet we are content to do many of them with just a minimal awe, just a trace of wonder just an ounce of the glory and the majesty of Christ present among His people. See, if we are honest, for many of us, there's just very little that's breathtaking about Jesus and His church and His mission through His church. 
we've settled. We're familiar. It's a meeting. It's an activity. It's a calendar event. But there's very little, if we're honest, not for every one of us, but there's very little for many of us that takes our breath away when we think about Jesus and his church. And so it's no wonder that students who have no awe, who have no wonder, who have no amazement, who aren't startled by the grace of God, who aren't enamored by the love of Christ, who aren't filled with the Spirit of God exit, because there's a lot of other options. If he's not awesome, you'll find something that you think is. Lots of options out there. And so I believe what, I can't speak as a prophet to the whole evangelical church, I can really only speak to me and you, because I have a responsibility to do that. But I I think what we need is a generation of people who step back and rather than being comfortable or satisfied with the norm, cry out to God for revival and renewal, starting with our own hearts. People who will stop and pause and cry out to God and say, we must have his manifest presence or we cannot go on. We must have his nearness. We must have his word. We must have the message of the gospel coursing through our veins. We must have the love of God and the holiness of the God and the grace of God pumping in our hearts. We must know that Jesus is here and he is empowering us to do something for him by his power and that animates our life. We must be people who are trusting God for something more who are anticipating something more, who are living for something more. And that is why we are studying the book of Acts. That is why we are studying the book of Acts. Because though the early church had problems, as I read the book of Acts, I don't find a cynical, crusty, familiar people who are familiar with God. I don't just find people doing church. I don't just find people running a program. I don't just find people filling the calendar with activities. I don't just find people who are steeped in organizational methodology and are becoming proficient at running meetings and running sound and doing demographics and putting up nice websites. That's not what I find. I find a people that are weak, that are dependent, that are crying out for God and are filled with His Spirit and are changing the world by the presence of God and not by a methodology. And so I'm signing up and inviting you to do the same. I want to be a dependent person empowered by the Spirit to be a part of the people of God to turn the world upside down, starting in Frisco and beyond to the uttermost parts of the world. We want to be people following the risen and exalted Jesus as he builds his church and reaches the world. And that's what we find in the book of Acts. I believe there are many places in the scripture that can direct our church and the American church in these days. But it's hard for me to imagine a place in scripture that's more targeted. Because there's a lot of people giving a lot of vision for what the church can and should be. And I think the vision for what the church can and should be is found in this narrative, this historical account of what God did in the early church and what God wants to do yet again today, I believe. So let's read the first 11 verses, and this is the passage that we will open the book with today. In the first book, 
O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while they were... while. Staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray. Our Lord, as we walk through this passage and begin to walk through this book, we pray that you would have your way. We pray that you would have your way in our hearts. We pray for those married, that you would have your way in marriages. We pray for those with children, that you would have your way in families. We pray that you would have your way in our community groups. We pray that you would have your way in our whole church, in our city, in our nation, and in our world. And Lord, we just pray that you would renew and revive your people. God, we pray in your mercy and because of your love, you would wake us up and that we would never settle for sub-biblical Christianity, but Lord, we would have your heart and your plan ready to make sacrifices for your glory and to live for your name and your reputation. We pray that you would fill us with the Spirit. I pray right now, and I imagine we'll pray this every week, fill us with your Spirit, that we can be about your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm not going to do a lot of background on the book of Acts. Instead, what I did was put a, an article on the city. Um, if you want to access that article, open the city, go to the groups, which is on the left hand, Click on Grace Church group. That means that the whole church is in that group. And then open that, and you'll be able to scroll down and find it. It's an article written by one of our church members, Robert Wiesner. And he did some background study for us on Acts and put together like five pages or something, I don't recall. But it's about that, about a five-page little paper that's an overview of Acts. And I just want to uh, point you there. And I decided just to jump into the text rather than uh, do a lot of background. But we want to do some just because the introduction to the book is background. Um, in its orientation. But you can look on there. Thank you, Robert. I don't know if you're in the service of the next, but I didn't see you probably in the late service. But you can thank Robert when you see him because he did some good work for all of us to help us understand the background of Acts. The first thing we learn about the book of Acts when we open up to it is that it's a sequel. 
that it's volume two. Look at verse one. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So there is a first book. We're reading the second book. Um, The first book is the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke. In the Gospel of Luke, he starts in a very similar way. Luke says in his first volume, which is the story of Jesus' life according to Luke, he opens it and he says, um, I'm providing an orderly account for you, O most excellent Theophilus, uh, so that you will know uh, what you have been taught. You will know the things that of which you have been taught. So Luke opens his book, the Gospel of Luke, and he says the same thing. I'm writing to you, Theophilus. Here he says, this is my second book to you, Theophilus. Uh, we don't know who Theophilus is. He's the recipient of this letter. Uh, he's probably some kind of official with some clout because he called him most excellent Theophilus. And so that was sort of an honor, an honorary title that could be given. Uh, he uses it later in the book of Felix and Festus, who are rulers. So he could have been a ruler, some influential guy. Uh, probably Luke is hoping that he will sort of be a patron and, and uh, spread this letter around, these two letters, these two books, and that he would spread them around and make sure they get some traction and some play. Probably he's a strategic guy to write to, but we really don't know anything about him. His name means love, loved by God or friend of God or something like, like that along those lines. But we don't know much about him. But he writes to him, and we know that it's Luke not only because... In chapter, uh, I'm sorry, in, in the Luke's gospel, he says something similar. But the book of Colossians, chapter 4, we read that Luke was a companion of Paul. And as we read later in the Acts of the Apostles, we're going to see that that someone's accompanying Paul who's writing this book. He's an eyewitness. And he, he kicks into we at various points. We saw this. So he is writing first person plural with Paul. We know that he, Luke was with Paul according to Colossians 4. So we put those all together and, and we can be certain that it is Luke, uh, who's a doctor, who writes this account. And what is so vital to get from this, from the first verse, I think, that, that will help us to interpret the entire book, is what he says in verse 1. I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, verse 2, until the day when he was taking up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So, volume 1 is all that, God, uh, all that Jesus began to do and teach. Volume 2, by implication, is what? All that Jesus continues to do and teach. That, that's the point, that Jesus comes and has an earthly ministry. He dies for sinners. He's buried. He's resurrected to new life. At the end of Luke, he ascends to the Father. At the beginning of Acts, he ascends. It's the same ascension. He just ends volume one and then picks up volume two with this great event. And that is the event that separates all that Jesus began to do in the gospel and all that he continues to do in the book of Acts. See, it's a book that is about what Jesus is doing from his heavenly position. He's exalted. We'll read that in a minute. He's ascended and exalted. And then he pours out his spirit. And he is continuing to be 
active among his church. He's not there physically, the man Christ Jesus, but he is there by his Holy Spirit, and he is at work. Do you realize that, that the ministry of Jesus continues? It did not end with his death. It did not end with his resurrection. It did not end with his ascension. It continues. He continues to teach and to do. He's teaching us now through his written word, which we're studying, and he continues to act and to do things. And so the book here that we're reading, the title, uh, we can be, we can make some inaccurate assumptions about it. The book was initially titled The Acts. And somewhere down the line, someone called it The Acts of the Apostles. Now, certainly, we're going to read a lot about the apostles and the Acts of the Apostles, but there's thinking, there's things happening in the book of Acts that aren't tied to the apostles as well. So, you know, I don't want to argue with the title, The Acts of the Apostles. The Apostles part was added later. But one of the challenges with that is that it roots us in history, but leaves us in history. There's no more, these apostles are all dead. So it's a historical narrative, but it's not, it doesn't stay historical. It doesn't stay first century. So some people have said, well, it's better to call it The Acts of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's a strong suggestion. The acts of the Holy Spirit, because it's really God working through the apostles. But I like what John Stott says. He, he writes and he says when, when, when he introduces the book, this is all that he began to do and teach. Here's his suggestion for the title of the book. It is cumbersome, and that's why it's not the title of the book, but it's accurate. He says he thinks the book should be called The Continuing Words and Deeds of Jesus. By his spirit through the apostles. I like that. But it just doesn't sound very good to turn to the continuing. The continuing, verse 1 of the continuing. The Acts of the Apostles is what's written in your Bible. But do you get the point? The continuing words of Jesus by his spirit. It is God at work. And the book, this is what's so fascinating. It ends open-ended. It ends, the, the book ends with, uh, Paul imprisoned, but still alive. He's just witnessing to people. He has people coming and going. So it ends open-ended. The very idea, it has a, quite a definitive beginning, but it ends open because it really doesn't come to a close until Jesus returns. You see, Jesus comes, he lives a life, he teaches, he acts, he dies for us, he's buried, he's raised, he ascends, he pours out his spirit in Acts 2, and he's at work through the apostles, their teaching is recorded for us, and he's still at work. Jesus is still active. This is the lost glory, I believe. This is the lost vision that Christ is still in a ministry in us and among us and through us. That he had an earthly ministry, he now has a heavenly ministry, and he's here today. I mean, do you know that? That the shepherd is walking the aisles and tending the sheep today by his Holy Spirit. The shepherd king is ruling and reigning here today. The healer is present. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus, the healer, is present to heal those who will ask and come in faith today according to his will. Jesus is present to, to free people from oppressive spirits who battle with them and torture them, to clear minds, to bring freedom. Jesus, the liberator, is present to free the captives by the power of his spirit today. Was he 
in the Gospel of Luke? Absolutely. Was he in the book of Acts through the apostles? Absolutely. Is he today? Yes. And dare we not forget it? Because when we do, we go to business as usual. Yeah, everything's horizontal. There's a lack of a vertical awareness. But if we read this book and understand, this is the beginning. Luke was the beginning of all he began to do and teach. Acts is the continuation with no end. With no end. He's present. He's active. He's working. He sent his church. He'll never leave or forsake us. He's with us. He's speaking through us as we open up his word. He's, he's saving. He's delivering. He's freeing. He's healing. He's cleansing. He's loving. He's shepherding. He's protecting. He's here. He's here. That changes everything about this meeting, by the way. It changes how I think about it during the week, or it should change. Should change how I pray about Sunday morning. Should change how I view my Saturday night. Should change what I do on Sunday morning. Should change when I come here. Should change how I behave while I am here. Should change the focus of what I'm doing here when we gather. We're not just running a meeting. We're not entertaining people. We're not giving, having some nice musical introduction with a stimulating lecture to follow, followed by a polite prayer, and then we can all go to lunch. We're coming to meet Jesus. He's in and among his people. He's active. He's continuing to do and teach. He is speaking to us through the word. Now, I'm not saying that I will say things that are inaccurate, so you should check them with the word. I'm fallen like you. None of us have perfect doctrine and perfect interpretation of the scripture. So you must check this with the word. But as we read the scripture and teach it, Jesus is speaking through the spirit. He's really teaching us. He's really answering our prayers. He's really present. He's really receiving the songs that we sing and is blessed when we sing them with a heart of love and faith towards him. He's reaching out to people as we reach out and welcome them. Welcome one another if you've been welcomed by the Lord, the scripture says. So as we reach out to others, Jesus is present, reaching out, caring for the poor and the oppressed and the broken and the sad and the lonely. We really are. It can be trite. But we really are his hands. We really are his feet. He is active among his people. He began to do something in the Gospel of Luke. He continues it with the, in, the, in the Acts by the power of the Spirit through his people. So that's how he starts. He also gives us some historical fact, verse 3, that Jesus presented himself alive to the disciples, the apostles, after his suffering with many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So he's showing up at various times. Later we're going to read that he ate with them. He's speaking to them about the kingdom of God, which we'll talk about in the next few verses. He is among his people. People saw him. People who were hearing the gospel preached in the book of Acts saw him, uh, heard him, knew he was alive. Verse 4, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. So there's several things happening in this chapter. First of all, there's the promise of the Spirit. We're going to talk about that. Second of all, there's the ascension. We're going to talk about that. Thirdly, there is the choosing of a new disciple, a new apostle. We'll talk about that next week. And then there is the pouring out of the Spirit. See, here's, there's several things that have to happen before these, this, this band of believers can go out on mission. Several things that must happen. Uh, the first thing that must happen is um, the first thing that must happen is that uh, he must ascend. 
and then they must find another apostle, and then he will pour out the Spirit, and then game on. When he pours out the Spirit, it is all, all heaven is breaking loose in the book of Acts at that point. So that's what we see in this passage. Let's talk some about, first of all, the promise of the Spirit. Look at verse 4. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So John the Baptist came, he called people to repentance, he baptized them in water. You want to turn from your sins and follow God, the King is coming, the Messiah is coming. You want to prepare your heart, be baptized in water, that was John the Baptist's baptism, and get ready, he's coming. But he told the disciples, there's a different baptism that's coming. It's coming in chapter 2, by the way, of Acts. And you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. John immersed people in water for repentance. Here's what's about to happen in a few days. He says, you're going to be, baptized means to immerse, to plunge, to dip. That's what it literally means. Not wanting to start an argument about mode of water baptism here, but that's what it means. It means plunge, dip, immerse. And so he's saying, in a few days, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be immersed in the Holy Spirit. Not water, the Holy Spirit. You're going to be plunged. You're going to be dipped. You're going to be buried. You're going to be overwhelmed with the Holy Spirit. I mean, they probably have no idea we're going to see. They, they do have no idea what he's talking about. He's saying the, the Spirit is about to be poured out. It's, it's described in different ways. The Spirit's going to come on you is one way it's described. The Spirit's going to fill you. So there's this coming on, this pouring, there's this immersion, there's this filling to overflowing. The Spirit's going to overflow you, like taking a cup and filling it up to overflowing, or taking a cup and plunging it in a sink full of water, immersing it, baptizing it. That's what's about to happen to you. So that's what he tells them. He says, look, in a few days, the promise is going to come. You are going to be immersed in the Spirit. And that raises some questions for the apostles. Look what they say, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're revealing their expectation here. See, look, earlier he said for 40 days, verse 3, he taught them about the kingdom of God. And then he said they're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. So they're putting some things together. They know their Old Testaments. They know the promise of the Old Testament. And that is this, that there's coming a Messianic age. There's coming a Messiah. There's coming a Christ, which means king. Anointed one is what it really means. There's coming a Christ. And when he comes, he will be in the line of David, who's the great king. And when he comes, the great Messiah, there will be an outpouring of the Spirit. You can read these things in the Old Testament. So they're hearing kingdom. They're hearing baptism in the Spirit. So what are they thinking? Political revival. That's what they say. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? The people of Israel, the uh, apostles included here, they are under Roman rule. So they don't have freedom. They don't have geographic boundaries for the nation of Israel. They don't have sovereign rule of themselves. They are part of the Roman Empire. And they are ruled by Caesar and various local uh, other rulers, the most powerful uh, kingdom in the world at this time, the kingdom of Rome. And so they are hearing, okay, David is a king like David. We know that from the Old Testament. He was the great king who, who uh, led Israel, our nation. So we're going to get our political freedom. 
you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel. Is now the time that you are going to do this? But they have misunderstood. That is not what he's talking about. And so he says to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So actually, God has a sovereign plan. It's a secret. You don't get to find out about it. Okay, that's the answer. Uh, the answer is, you will never know. Verse 6, but you, here's what you can know. You will receive, I'm sorry, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So here's what he's saying. Uh, you know what? I'm not restoring the kingdom to national Israel. I'm not reinstating national Israel. You're not going to be a political ruler. Um, you're not going to overthrow Rome. You're not going to be a military insurgent. You're not going to pick up a gun and form an army and throw off Roman rule. I'm not going to miraculously come in and throw off Roman rule. No, God will figure out when Jesus returns and restores everything. That, that, that's coming. But you're not going to know about that. Here's what you're going to be. Not a ruler. Here's what you're going to be. Not a soldier. You're going to be a witness. You are going to have power come on you, and you're going to tell what you saw. You're going to tell what you know to be true about me, and people's lives are going to change. Families are going to change. Cities are going to change. There's going to be power that when you tell the truth of what you saw, it's going to change lives. Hearts that are dead are going to come to life. Eyes that are blind are going to get sight. It, not only are you going to be witnesses that tell good news, there's a, they're actually going to be used in power in many ways. They're going to pray and see miracles. They're going to see God move in glorious ways to demonstrate his presence and his good news. So not only that, but he says, listen, this isn't just about Israel. This is a kingdom that's going to spread. He's talking about a different kind of kingdom. He says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's where they are into all Judea, to Samaria, and to the end of the earth. This is a kingdom that I'm bringing that you're going to be empowered for that's not going to have national borders. It's not going to be Israel. It's going to be beyond. It's not going to be just Jerusalem. It's going to be Samaria. Ugh, that was their enemy. They hated Samaritans. They were like half Jews. They didn't like Samaritans. But it's going to be, the king, this kingdom is going to include Samaria. This kingdom is going to include all Judea. This, matter of fact, this kingdom is going to go to the ends of the earth. It's going to include Gentiles, which we're going to see is a big issue in Acts. It's going to be international. It's going to not respect cultural boundaries. It's going to not respect geographic boundaries. It's going to be a, it's going to be a kingdom that's going to go viral as the good news is spread. The good news, and I'm going to give you the power to do that. You're looking for a physical restoration. You're looking for a political solution. You're looking for a national answer. I'm giving you the spirit who will internationally form a new kingdom. And this outline of verse 8, or rather this verse 8, forms the outline of the book. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's chapter 2. Actually, it's chapter 2 through chapter 7. And... In all Judea and Samaria, that's chapter 8. There's going to be a scattering of the believers. Philip, in particular, is going to go to Samaria. Some other people are going to go to Samaria. They're going to reach Samaria. And to the ends of the earth. Chapter 9, this guy named Saul is going to get converted. 
and then there's going to start to be a mission to the ends of the earth. And there's going to be a mission to reach Gentiles, primarily through him. And we're going to find that in the rest of the chapters. And then in the closing chapters, he's going to be in the, in the Roman Empire, in the seat of the kingdom of the world. He's going to be in Rome, in prison, proclaiming the good news. It's going to go from this Jerusalem event that we're about to read about in a couple of weeks, all the way to Caesar, all the way to the Roman governing officials. See, when they think kingdom... It's like us. When we think kingdom, we probably think of an area with defined borders, the United Kingdom. But this is a different kind of kingdom. This is a kingdom that is everywhere where people believe in the king. Whoever believes in the king is in this kingdom. It's the invisible reign of Christ over all of his people. And so that kingdom is spread through being a witness of what you've seen and heard. Now, this verse applies to us, though it's a bit different. They are witnesses unlike us. The apostles, what qualified them as the witnesses who initially preached and wrote the, um, much of the New Testament, Paul in particular, what qualified them was that they had been with Jesus and had seen and heard. So they're first generation actual hands-on witnesses. Our witness is based on the truth of the Scripture and the fact that it's made a difference in our lives and given Christ has given us new life through. So we're witnesses as well. We are witnesses to what we have seen and heard in the Scripture and what we testify to in our life through Jesus Christ. So we're called to be witnesses as well, to go and spread the good news. So he gives them this promise. He says, you're going to receive power. We want to receive that same power to be witnesses. And then the next thing he does is he, well, he leaves. He ascends, verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. So after Jesus says these things to them, you're going to be my witnesses. Spirit of God's going to, you're going to be immersed in the Spirit of God. You're going to go tell everybody this great news. Then a cloud comes and he starts lifting up. Now this is not a rain cloud. It's probably it's probably like a glory cloud. We see the it's the presence of God. In the transfiguration, there, he is in a cloud. It's this it's this glowing, glistening, uh, glory light, uh, mysterious cloud that in, encircles him of the presence of God. And so he is lifted up. This is amazing. They're just standing there. He's talking to them. Okay, I'm going. And so the presence of God comes, and he just starts lifting up into the sky. I can't even imagine what that would have been like. They couldn't either, because they just keep staring. They keep staring, and then there's a couple of angels standing among them. It says these two guys there start talking to them. They're dressed in all white. That's the appearance of an angel taking the form of a man, but some heavenly beings are standing them, and they sort of correct them. Did you get this? They sort of rebuke them. Uh, men of Galilee, why are you standing here looking into heaven? He's coming back. He'll come back the same way. Why are you staring? Now, it's probably not good to talk back to an angel. It's probably not wise, but I would really be tempted to say, uh, well, I think the obvious reason is we've never seen anything like this. The presence of God takes Jesus from us up into the sky. Uh, we're a bit 
sort of mesmerized. It may be old hat, regular to you. We're not familiar with this sort of presence of God, glory of God, taking Jesus into the sky. I mean, I'd be tempted to say, wow. And they're probably standing there glistening in their white robes as well. Whoa, who's the bright guy? Uh, you know, so I imagine they're kind of blown away by the whole thing. But there must be something behind this. We don't know. I mean, we can certainly, I think, I think we can raise some reasonable speculations I mean, one might be they're just standing and looking in the sky, wondering, is he coming back? Because they say, look, he is going to come back just the way he came. But, okay, not right now. Maybe they expect him to come back. Maybe they're like lost. Maybe they're like those little puppies who are like, oh, you know, I don't know. Maybe like, what do we do now? He's gone. Jesus is gone. Now, he's prepared them. He's told them the Spirit's coming. He's given them their orders. He gave them a great commission. Maybe like, what do we do you ever travel and you got like a little kid and you drive off to go to the airport or whatever and they're just standing at the front doing that? Oh, maybe they're like that. Oh, he's gone. I don't know. Are they thinking he's coming back? Are they missing him? Whatever. They're, they're not supposed to be looking up in the sky right now. They say, guys, why are you looking up into the sky? See, they're not to be looking up into the sky. They've got being given a mission. They have got something to do. That's what's clear, is they're not to be looking up into the sky. Well, where are they to be looking? They're to be looking to God to empower them for what he's called them to do. Because this is a hinge event. This isn't the final event. It's not like he's gone. That was it. The ministry's over. Remember, he began an earthly ministry. His earthly ministry is over. Yes, that part is gone. But the ascension's not a conclusion, it's also an introduction. It's a hinge event. It closes the earthly ministry of Jesus, but it opens the heavenly ministry of Jesus. They can't be looking back nostalgically about like what the good old days were like when Jesus was with us. The, the Spirit's about to come and everything's going to change. Actually, Jesus said, it's better for me to go away because then the Spirit will come. What's about to happen is better. It's better than being in person with Jesus. That's what he said in the Gospel of John. And so he is gone. He is resurrected. He is ascended. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. So stand and stare in the sky? No, go. Go. All authority is mine. So stargaze and wonder? Go. 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 John Stott said this, it was the earth and not the sky which was to be their preoccupation. The vision they were to cultivate was not upwards in nostalgia to the heaven which had received Jesus, but outwards in compassion to a lost world which needed him. Christ will come personally, visibly, gloriously. Of that we have been assured. Other details can wait. Meanwhile, we have work to do in the power of the Spirit. There's the promise he's coming back. We look to his coming, we wait for his coming, we anticipate his coming, but there's something to do right now in the power of the Spirit. It's interesting. He makes a point, Stop makes a point I found very interesting and, and clarifying. He says that in this passage we see two extremes in the disciples, the apostles here. The, the first extreme is what we might call politicism. They're expecting a earthly kingdom. They're expecting utopia on earth. Jesus, is now the time you're going to reign physically right now. 
culture's going to change. All the laws are going to change. They're going to be your laws. You're going to, we're going to have a theocracy with you ruling Israel in these geographic boundaries. Is that what's going to happen right now? Are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? Uh, no, he's building a kingdom that will be a new people, Jew and Gentile, all over the world together. It was an earthly hope. It was a political hope. Now they're looking up into the sky. They're gazing in the sky, and the angels are saying, what are you doing? Why are you gazing up into the sky? Stott says that's, uh, that's the pietist position. That's the pietist whose gaze is in heaven to the neglect of the earth. The first view, are you restoring to Israel the kingdom right now? That's too earthly. The second view, we're standing here just looking and waiting. That's too heavenly. What's the appropriate view? Well, the appropriate view is you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. We are to have a view on the reigning Jesus. We are to have worship for the reigning Christ, but we are to recognize that his reign is being expressed through the preaching of the good news through his church. And so while we look heavenward, it is with a view towards looking earthward that we may be filled with the spirit to proclaim the gospel, to make a tangible physical difference in this life. We're not the pietists who just say the, you know, temporal matters don't matter. Physical matters don't don't matter. Change doesn't matter. We're just all about spiritual realities. We're not that, but we're also not so earthly rooted that all we think about is that we are rather to be those who are so filled with the spirit that we are earthly good because we are proclaiming the gospel to those who need him. We're not just waiting here, ready to be whisked out of this mess No, we have the gospel, so we are waiting here for his return, but in the meantime, we're asking for his filling, his empowering, his glory to shine through us, because there's a lot of work to do. Jesus is still acting and teaching through his scripture. Jesus is still acting and still moving. There is good news to share. There are people that need to be rescued by Christ. He is on the move, and he is active And so he's not calling everybody to just stand, look in the sky. He's calling us to keep our eyes on him, but keep moving as we have our eyes on him. Keep listening for him, but keep moving as we are listening. Keep praying, but active as we are praying. Keep worshiping, but worshiping with a momentum that moves beyond us. It's both. It's looking to Jesus, trusting him waiting for his filling, asking for him, but it's always doing so for the purpose of serving his purposes on this earth. See, our real calling is the same as theirs. There's real differences. Nobody's writing scripture. Nobody's speaking apostolically. Uh, Some of the miracles that happen, I, I, I do believe, are to attest a unique role of the apostles So there are some unique things in Acts. I'm not saying that we're going to read this. This is the playbook. Next week, you know, next week I'll be handing out a handkerchief that will heal everybody in the right section. I mean, Paul, people are taking handkerchiefs from his body and getting healed. I mean, God could do that if he wants, but that's not in the plan for next week at this point. So there are certain things that may be unique, but there are other things that I believe are just to be our expectation that God is working miraculously, gloriously, powerfully saving 
See, our calling is to be the same as theirs, filled with the Spirit to share the love of God through the gospel with others, to walk out our earthly responsibilities with prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is heaven. It's a heavenly kingdom, it's a spiritual kingdom, and it's expressed on the earth by those who believe in him. Your kingdom come, your will be done through us. Very heavenly minded, very fruitful earthly in our earthly lives. Very spiritually directed, very physically active. There has to be a voice speaking. There have to be hands serving and loving and doing. There have to be eyes weeping. That's all physical stuff. There have to be feet going. That's all very physical. It's very spiritual, empowered by the Spirit. It's very earthly and physical. God using us to demonstrate His glory as a united people in Christ, to profess His good news and to watch Him work, to meet the needs of others, to care for the sick and the poor and the weak and the widow and the orphan. It's both. It's not one or the other. I mean, what would it be like if we lived in that kind of power? I, I've just been thinking, I've been reading this book, Book of Acts, reading it in chunks. I haven't sat and read it all the way through. It's about two and a half hours if you want to do that, because I have a recording of it. I haven't sat and read two and a half hours straight. But I'm reading large chunks and just going through it and meditating on it. I'm just asking this question, Lord, what would it be like? Why not? God, why wouldn't you do this again? Why wouldn't you do these things now? Why wouldn't there be a momentum that we see here? There's a momentum here. The Spirit will fill you, and then you will go to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world. The gospel will move. It says throughout, we're going to look at this throughout, that the Word of God multiplied. That's our focus this year, multiply. That's what we're calling this series, by the way. Multiply. The Word of God multiplies. How? It multiplies godliness. It multiplies conversions. It multiplies leaders. The gospel multiplies churches. It multiplies the power of the Spirit in people's lives. It multiplies comfort during suffering. It multiplies peace during opposition and persecution. There is this momentum. The gospel is doing something. It's not a bunch of people sitting in a meeting. And I love meetings. God is present. We're for this. But it's not just sitting in a meeting and nothing else happening. It's not something to attend. It's a life filled with the Spirit, used by God, joined together with the people of God, caught up in, a, in the movement that the gospel provides, the good news going forth, a movement next door, a movement to the next cubicle, a movement to the student in the desk next to me at school, a movement to the phone to call someone, a movement to the uh, keyboard to type an email to someone to communicate the grace, a movement together to join in a family room, in a living room, and care for one another as part of the mission and pray to God, a movement as we gather and experience his presence and a power, and a movement as we scatter to take his message elsewhere. There's momentum, there's multiplication. Regularly in the Acts it says, and, and the word of God increased and multiplied. There is something happening. It's not stand still. Things are happening. God is active. Jesus is a historical figure to be sure, but he is a figure who is risen and resurrected and reigning and ascended and present now by his spirit. It's not just the Jesus of old, it's Jesus active now. It's not the shepherd just in the Gospels, it's the shepherd tending his sheep now and calling others to be his sheep and making them his sheep. Listen, here's what's amazing about the book of Acts. These are, this is a ragtag group of people. 
These are not impressive people. Now, later, Paul's impressive, humanly speaking. But these guys are fishermen, tax collector who was an enemy of the people of God. I mean, they're, they're simple, simple people. And they gather, they pray, the Spirit comes, and by the end of the book, with nothing going for them, the gospel's in Rome. And there's churches all over the place. I love this comment. I wrote it down. I didn't write who said it. I think James Boyce said this. He said, humanly speaking, the early church had nothing going for it. It had no money. It had no proven leaders. No technological tools for propagating the gospel. You think about that? They don't even have the Bible written. They got some scrolls of the Old Testament. They don't even have it. They don't even know what an app is. They have nothing. They have no technological tools for propagating the gospel. The church faced enormous obstacles. It is utterly new. It taught truths that were incredible, meaning couldn't be believed. It taught truths that were unbelievable to an unregenerate world. It was subject to the most intense hatred and persecution. Yet, as Luke records, its growth in this document, it spread from Jerusalem, which was an obscure corner of the world to Rome. The world's capital, all within the lifetime of the first generation of believers. Ragtag group, ragtag group that didn't have near what the church today in places like here have going for it as tools. But they had the Holy Spirit, and they had boldness, and they had good news, and the world changed. Oh, we long for that. We long for that. One quote and we're done. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, and he probably said this, I don't know the date, but probably the 50s, 60s, how much more true today, the 1950s or 60s. He said, our greatest danger I feel today is to quench the Spirit. I, I believe that's true. Our greatest danger is to quench the Spirit. This is no age to advocate restraint. The church today does not need to be restrained but to be aroused, to be awakened, and to be filled with a spirit of glory. That's what will keep kids in the church. That's what will take a marginalized people in a culture. That will have a culture say, we can't ignore that. We may disagree with certain, we cannot ignore the power that is resident in that group of people. That's what will make a difference. That's what will take a skeptic and bend their ear when they encounter people who are filled with the Spirit, who really believe, who really believe. It's not the unbelief of the world that's the problem. It's the unbelief of the church. It's the unbelief in this room, in my heart, the resident unbelief in my heart, the challenge. I'm not talking about atheistic unbelief. I'm talking about doubt and fear and worry and anxiety and I don't know and busyness, which causes me not even to think about God. That's the problem. But when the Spirit of God changes our heart, changes our mind, changes our thinking, when the Spirit of glory rests on the church, then watch out. There's no persecution that can shut that down. There's no cultural opposition that can shut that down. There's no mocking of the culture that can shut that up from changing lives. You won't be able to keep people in the building. We won't be trying to grab the next generation from leaving. We'll be making room and building more space for the next generation because they're staying and they got somebody with them. And so that's what the book of Acts is about. 
hey, look, guys, it's not the earthly kingdom. You've got that wrong. It's not time to stand and just gaze and do nothing. We've got to have angels tell us that. Get busy, fellas, is what they're saying. We need to cry out to God, to posture ourselves, to experience Him through His Word, to believe Him, to take Him at His Word, and to step out in faith and say, God, here I am, send me. Do more than we could ask or imagine in our generation. And may it start here. Why not? That's why I keep thinking, why not? Why not today? Why not this? Why not in my life? Why not in your life? You got anything better to do? Come, Spirit of God, let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.